CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and this is The Great America Show. There's more than a little wrong in America these days, don't you think? I'm sorry to say. We now know that the foreign-born population in this country has risen to record levels, growing almost, get ready for this, growing almost 150% over the past 30 years. Our population, our foreign-born population, going from 20 million to almost 47 million people. And the political persecution by the Marxist Dems continues. And as expected, the Marxist Dem Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, has hounded, harassed, and threatened Donald Trump for years. She actually campaigned for the AG office in deep blue New York, basically promising to throw him in jail. She has finally filed a lawsuit against the former president, who said she's a racist and wouldn't have filed that lawsuit, except she's way down in the polls. James' lawsuit doesn't amount to much after her three-year investigation into President Trump and his organization. That investigation resulted in no criminal charges whatsoever for the president or his family, bringing what is clearly a politically motivated civil suit against the former president. The lawsuit does go after three of his kids, Eric, Don Jr., and Ivanka. The lawsuit alleges President Trump inflated his net worth by billions of dollars, inflated his property's worth to increase borrowing power against those assets. These are among the ridiculous allegations, and I want to note all of the loans, all of the loans taken against his properties were paid off. Once again, I want to reiterate this, all of those allegations that she's laid out after a three-year-long investigation and no criminal charges amount to, well, I'll let you finish that sentence. Let's not forget the numerous times James campaigned on getting Trump and continued that rhetoric once she was elected. Take a listen to the crazed, venomous James campaigning for AG. I'm running for attorney general because I will never be afraid to challenge this illegitimate president when our fundamental rights are at stake. I believe that the president of these United States can be indicted for criminal offenses. It's important that everyone understand that the days of Donald Trump are coming to an end. He built his wealth off the backs of New Yorkers. We need to focus on Donald Trump and his abuses. We need to follow his money. We need to find out where he's laundered money. All of those transactions have happened here in New York City. Tell this president and every other individual that no one is above the law. We must do our job to ensure that the man currently occupying the Oval Office is held accountable to any and everything he has done. A legal system where even the most powerful in the country cannot use a loophole to evade justice. And what would you say to people who say, oh, I'm not going to bother to register to vote because my voice doesn't make a difference, or I'm just one person? I say one, I say one name, Donald Trump. That should motivate you. 
Get off your ass and vote. Will you, will you sue him for us? Oh, we're going to definitely sue him. We're going to be a real pain in the ass. He said I know my name personally. I love it. No one is above the law, including this illegitimate president. And so, I look forward. I look forward to going into the office of Attorney General every day, suing him, defending your rights, and then going home. Illegitimate president. You heard that, right? Letitia James, a full-on election denier. She'll probably be brought up on insurrection charges any day. Someone who certainly hasn't been a fan of former President Trump lately is the former Attorney General William Barr. But even Barr, talking with Fox News, backed the former president. Here's what he had to say about Letitia James' charges against the former president. It's hard for me not to conclude it's a political uh, hit job. I and mean, this is a woman who campaigned for office saying that promising she was going to go after Trump, which I think is a, a tremendous abuse of office to go headhunting and targeting individuals. So I think she was targeting Trump. And this is after three years, a civil lawsuit, the gist of which is that when the Trump organization borrowed money, Trump personally guaranteed those loans. And to support that, she's claiming that he inflated his assets on his financial statements. The loans were paid back. These were successful investments and the banks were paid back. So to have spent three years on this uh, seems to me her trying to make good on a campaign promise that she was going to bring Trump down. So, so are you suggesting uh, no harm, no foul here? Well, I'm suggesting this is not the kind of case you would want to sink a lot of effort into. Uh, and, the, I'm, and I'm also saying that I think the proof is probably fairly paltry when it comes to, to uh, Trump. But what persuades me that this is overreach is that she went after the children. Yeah. She just says, you know, they conspired. She has no evidence that they played a role in this. If, if your parents were going to help you get a, uh, buy a car and they were going to guarantee it and submitted their financial statements and they had as complicated a, a financial situation as Trump, would you be, would you, you know, feel you had to go out and fly spec it and so forth? No. No, she's entitled to rely on the CFO and the accountants who prepared uh, her father's statement. Now, I'm not even sure she has a, a good case against Trump himself, but what ultimately persuades me that this is a, a political hit job is uh, she grossly overreaches when she tries to drag the children into the, this. Yes, they had roles in the business, but this was his personal financial statement. It was prepared by the CFO. Uh, accounting firms were involved in it. The, the children aren't going to know the details of that and be able, and nor are they expected in the real world to do their own due diligence and have it, you know, reviewed independently. And so uh, this, this to me looks like gross overreach, which I think is going to end up backfiring on them because I think it will make people sympathetic for Trump, that this is another example of uh, people piling on because of uh, Trump derangement syndrome, this, you know, this strong desire to, you know, to, to to punish him. So once again, President Trump left to fight on. He's fought for six long years through hoax after hoax, frame up after frame up, false allegation after false allegation. But you and I know the persecutions of the past six years have only proved wrongdoing on the part of the Marxist Dems and the deep state and produced never even one act of wrongdoing by President Trump in their six years of trying very hard. Joining us today is a man who spent four years working alongside President Trump, 
Our guest today is Russ Vogt. He was initially the deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. He finished his tenure in the Trump administration as the 42nd director of the Office of Management and Budget. Russ is now the president of the Center for Renewing America. Russ, it's great to have you back with us here on The Great America Show. Let's start with, if I may, the overall political atmospherics in the country right now. We're watching the president of the United States declare that we will intervene on behalf of Taiwan were China to invade. There seem to be a lot of Biden staff members who apparently outrank the president because they follow each set of his remarks, whether on 60 Minutes or a speech at the U.N., with denials, contradictions of the clearly now puppet president's remarks, and somehow the national corporate media listens to them and not the president. Strange, don't you think? And as usual, there's confusion all around. These are very peculiar happenings at the White House and throughout the Biden administration. Your thoughts, Russ? It's a pretty dangerous time in our country. I can't remember a more dangerous time. Um, The country is incredibly divided. We're really in the midst of a cold civil war. And one of the reasons we are so divided is that we are facing, 75 million of us are facing the reality that the national security apparatus is quite frankly weaponized against us and considering us domestic terrorists. Um, And that is done on behalf of this regime of which Joe Biden is essentially in charge of it, but we have a hard time believing that he is fully in charge of it based on every public appearance that he makes and based on everything that he states with some degree of clarity seemingly being walked back by his staff. And so, uh, you know, you can also get to the border, you can get to inflation, you can get to gas prices, but we are in a very rough situation headed into an election that I hope the American people are able to speak clearly and send the cavalry our way. And in that recent uh, interview with, if you can call it an interview, with Scott Halley on 60 Minutes, the, the president saying uh, he would tell Putin that there will be consequences. Uh, it was a very threatening response to Pelly's question. The president did not bring it up, but Pelly did. And I have to say, with a man with his impairments, uh, his obvious, he's obviously compromised in a number of ways uh, in uh, countries, uh, important countries on the globe. I, I'm, I just can't imagine him being a wartime president and the entire nation uh, not uh, diving for bunkers. Yeah, he is not prepared to do that. Uh, no foreign leader can take him seriously. Uh, our allies would not be confident in any sort of alliance in which we were leading that. Um, and this president largely needs to take the strategy of speaking less to the American people uh, because it just creates confusion every time he opens his mouth. Um, and it's it's unfortunately something that he, he's just not fit for the presidency. And as we look at the legislation that he has pushed through, this is the the national debt has risen to $31 trillion, now well in excess of the size of the annual GDP. Uh, he has been spending uh, money left and right without seemingly any constraint whatsoever from the Congress or either party, really. Uh, and we are looking at very difficult times ahead with fiscal policy, if you can call it a policy, but fis- fiscal uh, actions that he's taken. 
Uh, talk about a high inflationary environment. We're about, we're about to find out what one really looks like uh, at this rate, don't you think? I do believe that, and I think that's another aspect of the interview that you mentioned is that he tried to make it sound as if we're you know it's a status quo and they're not heaping on additional spending, but the reality is they cancel student loans to the tune of a one trillion dollars, and that alone is equal to about seventy five basis points that the Fed has to then raise rates or do something in terms of their balance sheet to counteract and the Biden administration is trying to say, hey, you know, Fed, you guys are you guys are independent, but they're just making life harder and they're doing nothing to have a fiscal policy that would actually attempt to deal with the inflation where we get back to balancing our books and being able to make wise decisions with the people's money. Uh, you know, we've had it's been a long time since, you know, we had that kind of uh, a bipartisan consensus by Congress to come along and actually cut spending. It was We tried to do it in the Trump administration and Congress just resisted us at every turn. Uh, but Biden has, has done the opposite. He's led in the wrong direction uh, unilaterally and with his budgets. And we have inflation as a result of that. Any thoughts about why the Republican Party, Party and I'm not saying that they could have prevented or even slowed him down uh, because of their, they're in the minority in both uh, bodies. But there have not been even vocal on the issue, to my way of thinking. Your thoughts? My, my thoughts are a little complicated on this. In one sense, I think that the, the strongest fiscal conservatives for the last several years, uh, when Trump was in charge, spent every waking moment rightfully trying to prevent a coup happening at the Department of Justice. And so the people most likely to pick a spending fight were had higher priorities at that moment. Uh, the larger issue is that DC is basically a political cartel that likes to spend money on the bureaucracy that they are really a, a, a good part of directing on their behalf. So they don't pass real laws anymore. They just give authority to agencies to pass laws and then they use the spending process to keep them in check. And they've largely created this, this issue that all of us fiscal conservatives have to deal with where they say, it's not a good spending cut unless it's coming from entitlements. Well, their entitlements need to be reformed over time. President Trump had a particularly good strategy of doing that. But the, we can't actually ever discuss cutting the spending that happens on an annual basis that members actually vote on. I mean, what, what craziness is that? And yet that's the, large, that's the consensus that governs even people who, who, who want to deal with our fiscal uh, uh, imbalances. And so we've got a lot of work to do, Lou. I'm going to actually be uh, doing a budget myself. Uh, the Center for Renewing America will put it out right at, in November, mid-November. We're going to show in a, in, a, in a MAGA way, an America first way, how you balance the budget in 10 years with the right set of priorities that the American people would actually support. Outstanding. Now, that's an exciting uh, announcement that you're making. Uh, I I just think that's that's terrific, and I wish that uh, uh, I can't wait to see your, your work product on that because, to me, it's one of the most important issues facing the nation, certainly. No, I agree, and I think that's, you know, we want to prove to the political class it can be done. If you don't want to do it, have the hard conversations about why you don't want to do it, but one of those reasons will not be that you can't. Yeah. And, and of course, one of the other part of this is the the politics of it all. 
uh, while this president is sending out checks to uh, just about everyone uh, in advance of the election, $1,000 checks, $800 checks, uh, uh, forgiving student loans to the tune, as you pointed out, of almost a trillion dollars. Uh, it's very hard uh, to tell your, your, your campaign committees and uh, your colleagues in Congress, if you're a Republican, that, all right, guys, we're going to balance the budget and we're going to be the, the responsible adults and uh, leaders of this party and, and do that. But that is obviously it's exactly what the nation requires. It does. And, and their strategy seems to be, and I talk about this a lot, their strategy seems to just be to continue to lie to the American people and say that they are not the reason that inflation is where it is, that the war in Ukraine is, or gas prices. And I think they, they, they just, they're not being uh, honest with the American people, n- nor have a, a, a healthy respect for, the American people are very bright. Uh, they have great intuitive sense to them, and they know that when they're li- being lied to, and that does not cause them to have greater credibility for their government. That caused them to have increased resentment and bitterness, and that only leads to the further divisions in our country. Well, for example, you know, when you accuse the Biden administration of lying, uh, we really should look at the Deficit Reduction Act, uh, the excuse me, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, the, the, I guess they can use those terms interchangeably depending on the subject. But it's amazing to me that they had the gall, the temerity to to call that legislation uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, even as they're spending $80 billion on 87,000 new F- uh, IRS agents. Uh, it's, it's, really, it's really breathtaking stuff, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, it certainly did not deserve to be called the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, nor do they have any track record of reducing the deficit. Uh, this was a, a, a spending bill. This was the, a Green New Deal down payment bill. Uh, and they are starting to articulate now, now that they are past the couple of news cycles beyond the Inflation Reduction Act being signed into law. Uh, but it also put into place uh, more apparatus that's really what I would call woke and weaponized. And so you've got the IRS um, you know, just think about the Treasury Department itself, which the IRS is within, is a $15 billion agency, department. Now, you're going to give uh, $80 billion to the IRS? <laughs> I mean, I understand the need to supercharge it if that's your policy, but, I mean, they just come up with these numbers on napkins and, and, and put them into bills. And, and then what that the reality is that's going to be audits as far as the eye can see. Small businesses owners aren't going to have the accountants. There's not enough accountants out there to go work for the IRS. So the the small businesses that are making tough play calls in their LLCs are not going to have accountants to defend them. And they're going to be paying a lot more. And they're probably just going to make altogether different decisions that are less inclined to grow the economy and provide jobs. And we're going to be facing a host of issues. But that's just the start. There's a host of other programs within that that bill that they misnamed uh, intentionally the Inflation Reduction Act. Russ, tell us about the lawsuit that you brought against the the Biden administration. Sure, we have filed two complaints to the IRS uh, to raise the the level of awareness and to get some new precedent and investigations on the books at the IRS, hopefully if they do their job, against 
Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan, who donated $400 million to intervene in the last election. But here's the issue. They gave money to uh, C3, which are tax-deductible nonprofits for the purpose of educational, which are barred from participating or intervening in elections. And so they didn't just go out and create a PAC. They spent money, donated it, took the, the, the deduction, and was able to uh, put money into these. And what do these, these organizations do? The Center for Tech and Civic Life, Center for Election Innovation Research, they literally privatized uh, t the, the election apparatus into the hands of Democratic partisan operatives. Uh, to the, and there's horror stories all over the place. They didn't just set up a program that says, hey, anyone that might have a hard time and need help in COVID to make sure the elections were safe and clean. No, they didn't do that. They looked at the map and they said, these are the counties and here's the states where we need to hypercharge voter registration and create systematic voter fraud, really largely around mail-in voting. And they gave grants and they had very, very restrictive contract agreements with the grant recipients that said they had to be perp involved. They need to, on an ongoing basis, have the data. They need to, their staff needs to be consultants. In one case, they had four out of five keys to all of the ballots being stored from uh, absentee ballots. Uh, so this is a huge aspect of how the left rigged the last election, and we believe they did it illegally through the donations of Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan that we have, as a movement, called Zuckerbucks. And it's a major problem. We think the IRS should speak to it. If the IRS is not willing to on this administration, it will, the complaint will still be there for a future administration. And on that issue, uh, in, when we talk about all that transpired in the 2020 election, also great suspicions about and charges about the president himself charging the electronic voting companies were part of a conspiracy and an operation to uh, switch votes from him. Uh, at one point, he put it as uh, as uh, algorithms that would uh, drive those votes, uh, and his attorneys uh, put it that way. Uh, your thoughts about the role of the electronic voting systems and why we have never had, uh, in what two years, we haven't had a real uh, investigation of what transpired uh, in that election, whether it's electronic voting, whether it's mail-in voting. Uh, we've had superficial and very spotty reports, but nothing uh, holistic uh, in the way of uh, an investigation or a conclusion. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we definitely need more information about. I think we know enough that we got to get back to mail-in voting or away from mail-in voting, and uh, we got to get back to in-person voting and paper ballots. Uh, those are the things that uh, we can have greater confidence as an American people about being able to go into the polls and having every vote counted. And our view, and I think the President Trump's view, is we need to have more audits. We need to have more investigations. And how are we going to be able to fix this stuff if we don't continue to uh, mine into the last election? And so that's what we really have done in our sister organization, the Election Integrity Network by Cleta Mitchell. Uh, right. What we really do is we're, we try to keep mining, and then as we find things, uh, we make these issues national issues. So we discovered ongoing systemic voter fraud in North Carolina where they were pre-populating 
the driver's license for people to be able to, when you come to get an applications for a driver's license, pre-populating them to be as citizens to vote, go vote in North Carolina elections. Um, and they said, well, we, we solved the problem. And we said, no, we don't believe that you've actually looked at the problem statewide. And so those are the kinds of things that we've got to get a handle on. And I would include, like your question, one of those has to be the machines over time to really be able to connect all of the dots in the way that we've had a lot of anecdotal evidence, according to. Yeah, I've been covering electronic voting uh, skeptically, to put it kindly, skeptically for almost uh, two decades now. And we are sitting here now with the uh, Department of Homeland Security and its agency, uh, the uh, the election assistance uh, group. Uh, Homeland Security really is nothing more than a, a outsourcer and a functionary of some sort of hub, if you will, uh, for uh, a surveillance uh, of the electronic voting machines themselves. But there's no no actual understanding of what's happening in each jurisdiction, uh, standards that have to be complied with. It's all advisory. Uh, and the, the voting public never gets to look into what they are, in point of fact, black boxes. Uh, we don't see the contents, neither do the secretaries of state, nor the county clerks, or the uh, election commissions that run our elections. Uh, and that in and of itself cries out uh, for oversight. No question. I mean, we've got, um, we, we've had kind of a, a, it's unfortunate, I'm going to say once in generation, but we know if you've been following elections historically, uh, there's voter fraud, uh, systemic fraud that's that goes back generations, and we saw a tsunami of it in this last election, and there's so many threads that we got to run down, and the answer is not, let's stop talking about it. The answer is continue to refine and investigate, smoke out and fix so that we can have confidence when we go to the polls. And it's it's interesting that the Democrats uh, were screaming about uh, voter fraud in uh, 2016, but in 2020, uh, they want to say that everything is just fine and let's uh, move all, move along here. Uh, it, it's quite a change in attitude when the Democrats, in terms of electronic voting, I will say this, the, the Democrats were the greater critics of electronic voting uh, over the course of most of that 20 years, uh, right up to 2020. Uh, 2019, they were still uh, leading senators, Democratic senators, were complaining about the failure to replace old machines and to assure uh, the integrity of those machines. Uh, and, and suddenly... In 2020, oh, everything is fine here, and again, just move along. Our side is the complete reverse. And so, uh, as a result, we are always, the conservatives, the Republicans, are always behind the eight ball uh, because there is a, a fear to be able to do what is, what's necessary from a public policy standpoint or an oversight perspective to do what's necessary in that moment to save the country as opposed to making sure that you're 100% in line with everything you've ever said before. The left doesn't think that way. They get away with it from the media. But until right. we get that approach, we're going to have a hard time beating them back. You know, that's a terrific way to say that, Russ. And I, I have not heard anyone else put it that way. Could you repeat that for the audience? Because I think that is a profound statement for uh, what is a complete uh, uh, differentiating uh, uh, element uh, between the two parties. 
Sure. You know, if my interest is to get a raise, what's the reason I want to get that raise? If my position is I want to get a raise, well, I want that raise because I want to spend more time with my family and go on vacations and, and spend time with them. If I get the raise, but I have to work a lot longer, I've gotten my position, but I've hurt my interests. And so those two things have been separated. The, the left never is away or separated from their interest. They always make sure that their positions are aligned with their interests so that if they get what they want, they have actually served their strategic purpose. And I think that's the thing that our guys are just not savvy enough and or it's part of the way they play the game is that they can actually get what they've said that they they were going to try to do for their voters. But at the end of the day, they are not really here to actually save the country, which is what we all put them in office to do. Exactly. And uh, again, well said. I, as I said, I've never heard anybody put it the way you just did. And I think you're 100% right. Uh, the question of IQ in the party, uh, the party leadership, I, I I, I'm not going to, I'll ask you, I, I know you have to live and work in Washington, D.C., but I'm going to put it this way. You obviously have the courage of your principles and your and your philosophy. Uh, you're not going to be too worried about what I'm going to ask here. Uh, but the IQs, uh, there just seems to be an IQ differential again uh, between the leadership of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Uh, is that just a... Uh, just a superficial appearance, or is there something to it? Well, I think about it a little more institutionally, and I think about it that from the standpoint of that Washington, D.C. is essentially a political cartel, where the uniparty, the establishment is what we typically would call them, basically leaves policy points on the board intentionally because it involves risk, and that risk means that they are less likely to have the same amount of status quo. So they would rather say, no, we are not going to have a debate about uh, what's actually happening with the invasion along the border and use the word invasion. They don't want to have a conversation about what Planned Parenthood uh, was doing with the f federal funding that they were receiving because there's risk involved in that. And unfortunately, it's politics. There's risk involved. And to be able to articulate to the American people you can you have to do that to accomplish your objectives but here's the thing there's a vast supermajority out there for the america first objective america first agenda the cultural issues that donald trump ran on there's a supermajority out there that he was just beginning to crack and that involves risk but it's such high reward and it's the only thing that's going to save the country so to your question i look at it institutionally to say it's it's intended it, it's intended to be able to keep people away from the issues that are also the cartel busting issues. They can't go back and explain why they're not willing to use the word inv invasion and invoke it to their voters. So they've got to come up with shiny objects that distract from those cartel busting issues because those are, are most critical to preserving their power. And again, that power is rising dramatically in Washington, D.C. for the what I call the Marxist Dems who control the Democrat Party uh, and the Marxist Dems who are the masters of what I consider to be uh, the first puppet president in this country's history. It is, it's an extraordinary time, and I really don't know how to get at it. Uh, we have very few, we, very few, we have no uh, corporate uh, legacy media 
willing to investigate anything. They're not going to follow even the most uh, apparent uh, uh, transgressions of the party. And so without oversight of either the government or the oversight of our uh, the, what used to be the, the fourth estate, we're, we're just uh, in real trouble here, aren't we? We are, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to create new institutions that are not kind of warped by the last 40, 50 years of kind of the incoherencies of, of a particular view of conservatism. I think you need new legal paradigms um, that, be, that go back to the reality of what the founders, not just the words that they use in their original meaning, but their original understandings of what those of the separation of powers. If they were in these positions, how would they respond? They would respond fundamentally differently than our 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 two sides because uh, they they had they they meant for titanic struggles between the branches, between the feds and the states, and that's what we need to get back to. And we need new legal paradigms to do that. It's one of the reasons that we've started our center is to help them think through that and not just be scared by oh, there's you know four circuit opinions none of which have been opined by the Supreme Court. And they would suggest that you don't have this ability, even though the plain words of the Constitution would allow you to, to, to think in these terms. So that's how we think about it. And the beauty of it is that they've never, the left has only just done incremental reform for the last hundred years. And there's no reason that we can't just adopt fundamentally radically new paradigms that are fundamentally consistent with the, the our, our American founding. On a, a somewhat more granular level, what does that mean for the judiciary uh, that is now peopled uh, to a, a quickly rising uh, ratio of Dems uh, to Republican-appointed judges? Uh, what does it mean for the, the attitude uh, of the D.C. courts uh, sitting in D.C. rather than Omaha, Nebraska, it's very hard to find a jury uh, that is even remotely, remotely tolerant of uh, Republican or conservative views. Well, you know, part of my last comment was getting at the notion that the branches have lost their fear of each other and the, the main culprit has been the judiciary branch. I mean, they, they don't fear the other two bodies because the other two bodies have not used their constitutional authorities to give pause to their other their other branch. Um, and so that's, you know, the, when was the last time Congress even had a debate about taking away the jurisdiction or reforming the courts to be able to uh, deal with certain issues that where they have been out of bounds or take the just rampant abuse of national injunctions that we saw in the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. How ludicrous is that you can have a, 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 a judge in California put an entire national injunction on everyone impacting flyover country and North Carolina and everywhere else. And so those are the kinds of debates that we need to have that allow, that allows there to be some, some pause by the court system to say, you know what, we need to rein it in here and not be so flagrant across the board. Um, and you see that on the policy issues, but you also see with it, with how they're dealing with the J6 uh, prisoners and some of the procedural decisions there. I mean, everywhere you look, you have uh, the, the justice system outside the bounds uh, in temperament and aggressiveness than I think their founders would have ever expected. Let me ask you again one, uh, one more question on that issue, and that is the Lawfare Group that uh, 
supports the Marxist Dems in every way and from whom uh, they draw uh, immense uh, talent and huge numbers uh, to to people, their tactical squads in an election. Uh, it's the Republicans, Ronald McDaniel, the uh, chair of the Republican National Committee, coming out talking about uh, hallmarks of progress and 30,000 of this and 34. And meanwhile, we find out a bunch of people don't have anybody peopling their precincts right now in jurisdictions all over the country. We've got to square up lawfare, elections, uh, and support. And it seems madness to me that here we are in 2022 with what looks to be a red wave. I, uh, every poll, I, well, not every poll, but the polls I respect showing that still. And I'm not sure because I don't think the Republicans have done enough to assure the integrity of this election. Your thoughts? Well, we have taken it upon ourselves and our sister organization, Election Integrity Network, to make sure that we're creating the same kind of networks of poll watchers in key states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, North Carolina, Florida. Uh, And this is all done through our C4, the Citizens for Renewing America. And what we're doing is taking the model of the Virginia election. And the Virginia election, which I honestly didn't think we were going to win, Lou, uh, I didn't either. I didn't do I thought that their uh, systemic voter fraud would get them across the finish line. But the reality is that there had been this coalition stood up of just nonpartisan poll watchers that able to kept it in check. And that same model is being exported to states across the country. And uh, we won't get it all the way there for this next election. But it's meant to be a permanent infrastructure that doesn't rely on parties that come and go with different leadership, different interests, and to make sure the American people have something that is a little more permanent and to make sure that this is here to stay with people who know their precincts and know what is the games that are played at the county level across the country. Uh, Your thoughts, uh, as as we're wrapping up here, Russ, uh, your thoughts about your confidence in this election being uh, fair and square. I don't think that they can pull off what they pulled uh, in in twenty in twenty six uh, twenty twenty again, but uh, they will try. And they've got big tech, and they have they are trying to innovate. They're trying to instead of having Zuckerbucks, they're trying to spend billions in voter registration at federal agencies. We have a strategy in place to prevent them. But at the end of the day, I think that people need to get out there and vote uh, because I don't think that they will be able to get it uh, away with it, given the amount of increased eyes that um, the conservative movement is flooding the zone to make sure uh, is everywhere and the, the amount of eyes and attention. I mean, think about it. It took us uh, ever since the last election to figure out what was going on in that. Now we know headed into it, here are their strategies and we actually have a game plan to prevent it. So um, the enemy has a vote and we've got to be able to keep running our routes, uh, but uh, great progress I think is being made. Well, good, that, that's reassuring. And Russ is has made a, a, a reference, an allusion to the Biden White House and its re- efforts to replace Zuckerberg, private capital, high tech, big tech, big social media with its own get out the vote uh, initiatives that are well-funded, uh, have a natural infrastructure, 
and doing so with taxpayer dollars. Is there no way that a successful emergency lawsuit couldn't try to stop these folks doing exactly what they clearly now plan? I say clearly, they are not being transparent at all, but it's clear that they mean to use federal money, federal resources, and federal taxpayer taxpayer money and federal employees to get out the Democrat vote. Uh, we're certainly looking to all options being on the table. Uh, right now, we've focused on letting them know, letting all the bureaucrats know that they don't have the appropriations, the spending authority from Congress to do what they're being told to do, and that there's criminal penalties associated with them. And if they don't think those will be enforced by a future conservative administration, they should think twice and go and check with their general counsel. So we want that to have a chilling impact. Secondly, a lot of these things are these strategies by the left are based on the foundation of the motor voter law, which, yes, provided a mandate as to the motor, the departments of motor vehicle, but did not provide a mandate with the regard to the other partnerships that state job centers could have with job core centers at the Department of Labor or the housing authorities. And so we're, we're asking governors and state secretaries to say, we revoke that discretionary authority. And we are not going to participate in in your scheme to to have partisan activity done with federal taxpayer dollars. So we believe those two things right now can have an immediate impact to stop this in its tracks while we pursue any and all legal strategies. Russ Vogt, Center for Renewing America, uh, doing uh, doing amazing things, uh, thinking about issues uh, that are critically important to the nation's future and in point of fact, the nation's present. Russ, we always give our guests the, the last word here. Uh, so if you would, uh, your concluding thoughts. No, I appreciate the time to talk about the uh, where we are on America First perspective. Uh, Lou, you have been a hero and a leading thought leader in that uh, movement. And so it's a, a real privilege to be back on your show and to talk through uh, to your audience all the things that we're working on. So I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Russ. Russ Vogt, the head of the Center for Renewing America. Thanks, everybody, for being with us here today. And please join us tomorrow when our guest will be Kurt Olson, outstanding attorney, former Navy SEAL, who's represented President Trump. He's representing Mike Lindell. We'll be talking with him about, among other things, the Mike Lindell lawsuits against the FBI and the U.S. government. Please be with us. Thanks, everybody. Till then. God bless you, and may God bless America.